All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How's it going? Are you okay? I'm a little. Uh, I'm a little out of it. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't sleep last night because. Well, I'm recording this the day after I uh, hosted and performed at that benefit for the uh, Blues Foundation and the Americana Music Association. You know the one I'm talking about. If you've been listening to the show, you know where I'm at. But I'll get to that in a second. So I guess what I wanted to tell you first of all is that John Cleese is on the show today now this john cleese the the python so the of monty python and i recorded this quite a while ago because some of you've been asking me like didn't you mention this and we recorded this before i set up the new garage i had got the house but I, I i didn't have the sound right in here and it was actually at that studio where we recorded it where i met the guy who uh who uh, who who made my uh my sound panels? But anyways, I'm saying that goes back a bit, and it was sort of in support of something that Cleese was doing, a podcast that I don't think is happening anymore. But this is a, it's not dated, but I'm just telling you, if it sounds different, that's why. So that's happening. That's happening in, in as soon as you get through this. But I also wanted to mention. Uh, I don't know if you know. Maybe you do. Uh, Paul Myers, he's a musician and a journalist and an author, and he's been a longtime fan of this show. So I wanted to tell you he's got a uh, new book out. This one isn't a rock biography like his last few books, but it's uh, it's close. It's The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, the authorized biography of Canada's legendary sketch troupe. It's the it's the actual story of how they were formed. Uh, it's got new interviews with all five of the kids, plus other comedy luminaries who were influenced by them so you can go get that go pick up the book wherever you get books it's called the kids in the hall one dumb guy and while you're at it why not pick up a copy of the wtf book waiting for the punch now in paperback okay so let me get you uh, up to speed on what's happening i'm getting ready to go to new york i'm going to be in new york working on the joker movie uh which is very exciting i'm very excited about that it's going to be nice to be in new york it's going to be a nice time of year i believe unless the rain for some reason when i travel a lot of times it just seems to rain but uh, how, how can it rain for the whole time i'm there and then as we i'll be there for a while and then i'm gonna go i gotta do the movie and then on the november 10th i will be at the new york comedy festival uh at the beacon there are a few tickets left at the beacon if you want to go i think you can go to uh nycomedyfest.something maybe i should know this stuff how about just go to wtfpod.com slash tour uh to the link on the site if you still want to get tickets to my beacon show on november 10th i guess it's a right now it's a celebration of me is that what is that what i'm telling you about because what happened the other night and what i've been talking about happening happened I, uh, I hosted that event uh, at the Ace Theater. Jimmy Vivino was the musical director for the benefit for the uh, the Blues Foundation and the Americana Music Association. Across uh, the Great Divide was the name of the show. A lot of people were there. Lucinda Williams, Leanne Womack, Shamika Copeland, uh, Bob Weir was there, Doyle Bramhall, uh, a lot of people. Larkin and Larkin Poe. I, I know I'm missing people. A lot of other musicians. But I was to host it. And as I told many of you, Jimmy asked me to sit in on this old John Mayall tune. 
stepping out from the uh, the the Blues Breakers record, the Beano record, with Clapton, and uh, I was going to sit in with the band, and then he told me that Slash was going to sit in. So it was me and Slash and Jimmy playing this tune, and I've been freaking out about it previous to when I did it, freaking out to the point where my hands hurt, my fingers and my hands hurt because I I don't practice as much. I play, I'll sit here and play, but I don't practice guitar. I and I can no longer call it practicing because what I did over the last week was practice. And I'll tell you it gave me an appreciation. I always had an appreciation for for, for musicians, obviously. And and one thing I notice that always fascinates me about it, and I don't know why it should be shocking or 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 surprising to me is that when I have musicians in here and they play a song, they almost always nail it. It always amazes me that they don't they don't stumble. They 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 hit every chord. They hit every note. They, but that's what they do. This is their that's their craft. That's their art. That's their form of expression. That's what they've worked all these years to do. But I, I still find it uh, amazing and surprising because I can't do it. Uh, you know, I can show up and I can play, but I'm gonna I'm gonna clunk up something. Because I'm not a professional musician. That is not my craft. It is not my art. It is not my form. I do have to realize that because some, there's some part of me in the back of my brain that's sort of like, well, maybe this is, this is where I'm shifting gears. Maybe it's time for me to finally become the blues man that I've always been inside. But uh, you spend one night with real musicians and you see how they work and you know what's involved and, and the sort of comfort zone and the skill set needed it's sort of like, I'm nowhere near any of this. That's my goddamn narcissism. It's like, yeah, I mean, I think with a little work, this could be my life. So keep it as a hobby. No reason to ruin it by trying to make a living with it. It was interesting because I don't usually do this. The whole nature or the, uh, the part of the message of the of the evening was was across the great divide not just between blues and americana music but it was about the you know how music transcends the problems that people have that you know that music is something that brings us all together so i wanted to stay away from politics to honor the evening to to actually feel the power of the music and not have me get out there and do my uh some of my darker more recent jokes so I went out there and I, I welcomed everybody and I, I said something. I, I can't imagine it hasn't been said before. Uh, so I'm not, I, I don't know if I should take credit for it. I'd like to because I thought it was pretty clever, but it's too, it's too tight and it's too obvious uh, for it not to have been said before that there are two political parties, us and them. Uh, and obviously that can go either way. So I can't, I don't know if I wrote that, but, uh, but it seems too simple for me to have written that. But I told my Jerry Garcia story, which some of you know, maybe you don't know. Uh, and, and the message of that uh, was, I thought, at par with the evening, given that Bob Weir was going to be there. So it was a great crowd, a lot of deadheads, a lot of middle-aged people, but some young people. But the music was so, it was just so it was just it was it was actually transcendent the way that everything worked. And Jimmy did a great job putting everyone together. So I introduced people and then I came out and, and I, I was ready to do my bit, man. I was ready to play with Slash and Jimmy and we laid into it and I did all right. I, I'm, I'm proud of how I did. I wasn't nervous. It was an amazing experience. That's what I'm trying to say. And for those of you who are wondering if I was going to choke or whether I was going to follow through or whatever, 
I followed through. And uh, I, I feel pretty confident with how I perform. But the one thing I realized is that I am a, uh, I am a guitar player. I'm not a professional musician. Uh, I do not have the range or the chops to be a professional musician, but I can, uh, I can, I can lay down some pretty good blues riffs, and I can rock out a bit. But uh, these guys, these 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 men and women on the front lines of performing music for a living, that is some that is some fucking skill, man. And I and I and I love it, and I envy it, and uh, I'm in awe of it. It was an honor and, and and a very exciting thing for a lifelong guitar guy like myself to trade licks with uh, Jimmy Vivino and Slash. It was it was exciting. It was like a goddamn uh, ride that you didn't want to end. Really, you know, you get up there and uh, and and you're doing it, and it goes by so fast. And then, and then I was sort of like, well, can we, now that I'm relaxed, can we do a couple more numbers? That's in my head. But, uh, that was my moment. That was my time. And it was, uh, it was definitely a high point, a high point in my life in a lot of ways To I never thought I'd get to do that. It was great. As I said earlier, John Cleese, um, and I talked a long time ago. I don't, uh, I don't even remember exactly what we talked about, but you're going to hear it right now. I, I just wanted you to to know that we did this a while back, and it was when I was in between studios. It was at an external studio, which is a rare thing, because I was going to record John Cleese's podcast. And, you know, so we did mine and we did his, and we were going to release these episodes at the same time. But unfortunately, the podcast company he was working with went under, and those episodes he recorded may be part of the wreckage. So I'm not sure you'll ever hear that. But at least we have this talk, and I, and I want to thank Ryan Dilly for helping us set it up at a studio in L.A. where both John and I could record our separate talks. But uh, so that's sort of the backstory. So this is me. And John Cleese. And on Thursday, I'm going to be talking to Eric Idle. It's a Python week, but this is me and John. Enjoy. I've done eight shows in eight days in six different cities, which is if I seem particularly dim this morning, I'm going to give that as the reason. Do you enjoy the work? Yeah, I enjoy getting out in front of the audiences because the Python fans are very nice people. Yes, they are. You know, they're lovely people and they're kind of, they're they're not pompous and they're not mean and they've got a sense of humor and they're kind. They're not rowdy. Not not too rowdy. How old are they, if you generalize? Oh, they're old. My audience is old now. Are they? Oh, I'd say most of them are well over 40. Yeah. Because they all grew up with Python. Yeah. They all say, somebody said this to me two days ago, Yeah, you got me through my exams. Oh, really? And I think that's lovely because it's not just that laughter is pleasant and good for our body chemistry yeah. and helps us to relax. <laughs> it's actually, it, it's very good for getting us through things. Oh, it's necessary. Yeah. I, you know, just from doing the podcast and, uh, and doing comedy at this particular point in history, there are people that I get a lot of emails from like, I was in a dark place. 
Uh, yes, and that's it, right. And now because people are so isolated, so they may not come out to the theater, but with the podcast, you know, they can sit there and have a relationship with you that's and right. not feel like uh, they're alone in their dark hole. And a relationship they wouldn't have if we were on television. No, no, no it can't. It, yeah. I just love radio. I started in radio. My first job was in radio, and I've always felt there's a kind of intimacy. You it, and I, right. we're talking now, and yeah. it's easy because it's eyeball to eyeball. Yep. We're picking up each other's nonverbal signals, sure. which is what yeah. keeps the conversation flowing. Yeah. Television, we'd be sitting next to each other looking out at an audience. Doing lines. Doing lines. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. And in television, everything's prepared, you know, and people come in and remove lint from your jacket. <laughs> I mean, you know. And there's a guy that comes out and goes, let's get some clapping. How's that? Is everyone having a good time? How about some <laughs> It's a completely inauthentic experience. Do you know, the only thing that is completely inauthentic yeah. now is the reality shows. Of course. Right? Yeah. Which I, are planned I, down to the last detail. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I, can't I don't watch them. I, I don't know what they are. I, I don't have any uh, real experience with Kardashians or I, I don't know what's happening. Oh. I, I, I don't know. I don't have time to do it. But I remember one time at a TV taping, uh, they, I remember the first time where somebody actually recorded fake laughter, where the stage manager came out and go, all right, let me hear a big laugh. Yeah. Right now, let's bring it down. Give me a little, and they faked many levels of laughter, and I thought that was a sign of the end. I think they, so. They, yeah, they I think did. it is. But they, they always used to say that if you wanted to get good audience figures, you needed a laugh track. Sure. And I was always dubious about that, and I came to the conclusion that if the show wasn't any good, you yeah. needed a laugh track. Did you guys use a laugh track? On Python at all? No, we, we recorded it in front of a live audience. Yeah. We filmed stuff beforehand. Yeah. Uh, we'd go out and film for about a week or uh, 10 days. The field then, pieces. That film would get yeah. cut into the shows right. that we then do. we do six shows in a row. But we used to get the, the audience would start uh, watching at 8. Yeah. And we had to be finished by 10. And if we went on to 5 past 10, they weren't recording. Right. So it was always a looking at our watches, oh, because it trying was to a, get it all done in time. A union problem? or a, a, No, uh, probably the BBC money, you know, some bureaucrat saying, oh, we can't, we can't go to five past ten. That was that. Well, the place is run by those kind of bureaucrats, you know. Sure. And, and bureaucrats always run things for their own convenience. Sure. And they have no understanding whatsoever of any kind of creativity. They just don't understand yeah. what makes people creative. And so they constantly set things up in such a way that people's creativity is stifled. And these the people in charge, right? They're just detached. Yeah. And they're not, even, they're not even paying attention to what's going on. They're just hearing things and looking at their watch, and they're not connecting what, at all. No, we, I have a very simple phrase, which is that the problem is not that they don't know what they're doing, but that they have no idea that they don't know what they're doing, you see. And that gives them confidence. They do know that the lights are out at 10. That's right. Lights out at and 10. And we finished five seconds early, so it was a good show. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, the audience didn't like it. The yeah, said, no, 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 but it, we finished on yeah, time. Right we on were, time. We were within out. budget. Yeah. So you started in radio, but do you, when you wrote this book, uh, it was the experience, did you find yourself uh, you know, reflecting on things that you, you hadn't you know, even thought of in a long time? Did you find yourself emotional moving through your life? No, I found myself strangely unemotional. I, uh, there was a, a moment once early on when I was talking about my first, first time I fell in love. Yeah. 
uh, when I just felt completely pathetic and inadequate, like one does, you know. Yeah, what I sure. Mean? I think every teenager yeah. has had that experience. And Bumbling. during those two days, I thought to myself, um, "I'm being affected by this," and it never happened again. And I think it's because I've had so much therapy. I've been through all this <laughs> so stuff. So what's much. never happened again? What? You've never fallen in love, and you've never oh, no, felt no. out of. <laughs> no. It seems by your track record, you see. You keep, <laughs> You, you bastard. Keep, you keep giving it a try. <laughs> Something's happening. I think I'm I'm basically a, a romantic. But what I mean is, yeah. at that particular moment, yeah. um, where I was probably 21 or something like that, when I recalled that, it pulled me down. And never again did anything I recall pull me down. Because from my great age of 78 and yeah. all my therapy, I kind of worked through it all. And so when I remembered, oh, God, yes, I was unhappy at that time. Oh, yeah. God, I was so upset when right. she dumped me. Um, I was able to look at it with a sort of amused detachment, not unkind, but yeah. just think, well, that's what happens in life. Right. You know, that's life. So there's right. no point sitting here feeling sorry for yourself because it happens to everything. And I just thoroughly enjoyed recalling it. And the reason I did it is that I had lunch some years ago with Michael Caine. And he was in a terrific mood. Yeah. And I said, what, what are you, why are you so cheerful, Mike? He said, I'm writing my autobiography. And I said, well, and he said, it's wonderful. You recapture bits of your life yeah. that have completely disappeared from your memory. Yeah. And that's what happens. You remember one thing and then, oh, you suddenly remember something else. And then you remember the guy you used to sit next to in school. And then yeah. you remember another teacher. Right. And it's lovely because you're reclaiming all this stuff. And it's quite fresh in the memory again. And, and it's it, nice to know that it's still in there somewhere. Yeah. That, that you, you yeah of course, it's much clearer if it's 60 years ago sure. than if it's two weeks ago. So the first episode of the book, the autobiography, is, is much easier to write, I think. Yeah. If anybody asks me what I'm doing last week, I have no idea. It's weird that that happens. Why does that happen? Well, I think it's more, I think that what imprints itself on our memory yeah. is something that's new. Right. And therefore, when I try and think of the Python recordings, which were always in the same studio, it was always exactly the same routine. We'd yeah. get together, we'd yeah. have a read-through, we'd start to, you know, It was always the same week after week. And I have very, very few memories of, of what, that. Of, when, of any sort of differing things. Yeah, but, well, but if, we, if we went filming yeah. and we would go to Scotland sure. right. or Yorkshire yeah, yeah. or Torquay, I would remember that stuff because it was all so different from yeah. everything else. Yeah. And that's why on holiday, I think the first three days always goes more slowly because you're taking in new stuff right. and then as you get used to it you yeah. don't pay so much attention and time goes faster yeah i i don't know like my memory i'm 54 and things are starting to go away I think they're still in there, but things are starting. I find that I remember like embarrassing things. Very yeah. Sp- like like you're talking about that feeling of being in love that first time. It's horrendous. It's just you feel like an idiot. Yeah. Uh, and I remember those. And uh, you know, I sometimes I want to do over. I'd like to go back and try it again. Yeah. There's some things I'd like to try again. Well, I think that's what I've been doing with my marriages, and I seem to have found something. I used to refer to Jenny as my uh, as my current wife, but yeah. she didn't like that very much. So yeah. I call her my fourth and last. Oh, that's nice. And she's quite, quite wonderful. Well, that's I, I, I respect your, uh, your, 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 uh, your persistence. Yes. <laughs> Whereas Eric Idle, yeah, been married for forty years. Michael Palin, been married for fifty years, and, yeah. and everybody claps when you mention this. And I always say, well, well this is just a failure of imagination. <laughs> sure, I've been married for forty-two years. If you 
add the bits together. <laughs> That's right. Well, when's he waking up, Mark? You married? I've been married twice. I'm not married now. Uh, I have no children. Uh, and that's Oh, it. you're so lucky. Children are just awful. I, I feel that. I, yeah. I, I don't feel any regret about it. I, I, was, I didn't think it was the right thing for me because I never thought about doing it. It was never... It seems that people who want children are like, I want children. They don't even think twice about no. it. No. I think I'm it's like, because once they get married and you have that sort of, yeah. uh, you know, sort of golden haze for a bit and everything's yeah. wonderful and yeah. then the golden haze fades sure. and then you look around and think... Well, what yeah. should we do next? Shall we go to the cinema or shall we get married? And or, people uh, say, oh, well, let's get married. You yeah. say, all right. So having spent all this time thinking how wonderful it's going to be to yeah. be together, young people go and have kids and then spend the next 30 years looking after them. Yeah. Buggies. Yeah. For what? For, to For what, what end? I don't know. Uh, somebody once said it's to make us less selfish. And I think that's the best thing. That's you good. Get... You do it for selfish reasons. Yeah, you do it for selfish reasons. <laughs> it, it makes make you less, less selfish. selfish. Yeah. yeah. I, don't I mean, know. basically, they're a pain in the ass because they cost a fortune. And, and, yeah, and you don't know how they're going to turn out. You have no right. control over no them. No control after. over that, and they're never grateful. <laughs> yeah, anyway. right. Actually, I got one very nice one. I'm you, well, out of how many? Uh, out of only two. Oh, out of only one two. good one, one okay? Well, one's okay, and the other one is absolutely marvelous. She comes on stage with me and moderates and is very rude to me, much, much ruder than any ordinary interview. Would okay. Be, which makes it much more interesting. So she's processing some emotional baggage herself. <laughs> She's, she's yes. able to do a hands-on therapy well, session. That's right. We've got 2,000 people watching our family therapy. Yes. <laughs> so I, explain to me something about uh, England, because I don't know things. Yeah. That, uh, like, So when you grew up, what's the school situation? You went to prep school? How well, my parents, work? my mother had a little bit of money left over. Yeah. My dad didn't have any, but they From were determined what? to spend. Her dad was a, an auctioneer. Uh-huh. And my dad had sold insurance all his life. And his dad actually was a, a lawyer's clerk. clerk, mm-hmm. clerk. Um, and uh, they spent what little money they had on getting me a private uh, education. Yeah. For which I'm, I'm very grateful because I think it was better because the classes were small. And I think I was very lucky with my teachers. And you were the only child? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was the only one. Yeah. Did you feel like I always I always assume that an only child is a lot of pressure, but no one ever agrees with me. I've talked to many only children, and I project this idea that you're the, all they've got, that's got a way on you. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, it did with oh, you? Oh, no, I think so. Yeah. Because you have to carry the responsibility for them. You see, yeah. You've got three other brothers and sisters yeah, to yeah. help look after yeah. the old fools right. when they get doddery. Yeah. But otherwise, <laughs> I was it? looking after my mother, basically, until she died at the age of 101. When she was about 80, I was kind of thinking, well, I'll have that one off my hands. (laughs) She used to say to me, you'll miss me when I've gone. You'll miss me when I've gone. And I always say, well, one day she may be proved right. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) 101. 101. That's a good run. Yeah. So you went to a private school and then uh, uh, you went to uh, Cambridge? Yes, I went to a, what's called a prep school, which is 8 to 13, and then what's called a public school, which is a private school, uh, from 13 to 18. Were you performing early? When did you start doing the 
performing. I, I started doing one about 15 or 16. We used to do little entertainments. Uh, yeah. But it never occurred to me that I'd be in show business because people from my lower middle class didn't do that kind right. of thing. We became uh, sometimes lawyers, sometimes accountants, sometimes shopkeepers. It wasn't practical. Yeah, well, it just wasn't on the on the radar. You know? But there were entertainers that you enjoyed. Oh, yeah, we loved them. And we go to the theater every uh, every night. Who were the ones when you Once were a kid? Week. I won't know any of well, them. Well, you won't actually, no. I mean, uh, our greatest entertainer was a fellow at a wonderful TV show called Tony Hancock. Uh, that was in the 50s. People yeah. organized their evenings around which night Tony, uh, t- what was it called? Hancock's Half Hour. When, yeah. uh, but nobody's heard it. You t- it was a sitcom? Basically, yeah, it was a sitcom. But what what was surprise you is that in the fifties, I was watching a lot of television with my parents. Sure. And apart from the the football and the cricket, the only thing we seemed to watch was comedy, and the comedy was nearly all American. Oh yeah, like, like yeah. Which ones? Well, Jack Benny, mm-hmm. George Burns, Phil Silvers. Uh, what about our show, show Sid Caesar? No? No, we no. didn't get Sid Caesar. He came over and did a small number of shows, but we didn't get that. We never got The Honeymooners. We got Joan Davis. We got Lucille Ball. Sure. And, um, oh, and Amos and Andy, which we're not supposed to talk about. Sure. Uh, no, you so I grew up on that. Yeah. The big the big comedy show in the summer was Danny Kaye. Uh-huh. You see, so a lot of it was very American. And, and we, the BBC ran it. The BBC used to run those shows. And, yeah. and, and there was Hancock and there were a few British comedies, but mostly it was an American Mostly form. American. There were one or two very funny people. And then what started to happen as I got a bit older, as I was just uh, got to Cambridge and there was a show one afternoon and a friend of mine had got a couple of tickets to the matinee and I went out and I saw this show in the little Cambridge theater and it's still the funniest show I've ever seen. What show? And it was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. Jonathan Miller and Alan Bennett, who's now, I think, almost our best playwright. And I've never laughed like that in my life. And that changed England because up to that time, we'd been very, very respectful uh-huh. and very sort of polite, right. very proper. And if somebody went to interview the prime minister, it was like the head boy interviewing the headmaster. Sure. You see what I mean? Yeah. And suddenly they tore everything down. They made jokes about nuclear warfare, you know. Irreverence. Well, yes. I, mean, I remember one joke was because uh, Roger Bannister just r- run the four-minute mile the first time uh-huh. anyone ever did. Yeah. And uh, they were always talking in nuclear that if there was a nuclear war, we would have four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Peter Cook saying, some people in this great country of ours can run a mile in four minutes. <laughs> and they tore it up. They had a sketch about uh, about someone in a condemned cell about to be executed. Yeah. Uh, they made fun of racial prejudice. I've never seen anything so funny. And it was just a, it was a review? It was just a sketch Yeah, it was show? a series of sketches, and they were all absolutely brilliant. And Cook and, and Moore were together for years, right? Oh, yeah. But that changed England because suddenly— What year are we f- talking, 50s? We're talking uh, 62. Okay. And then that autumn, the BBC put satire. Now, before that, if you did an impersonation of the prime minister, it was considered disrespectful. We don't do that. 
Really? Yeah. It was as stuffy as that, and suddenly it was all thrown off, and that was when the 60s started. The early really. 60s, yeah, yeah. I think that's when everyone said— And you're at Cambridge still. I, yeah, I was at Cambridge to begin with, and then people said to me, well, what, what do you remember about the 60s? And I said, well, I just remember I was working quite hard. I didn't really notice them, because that was when I was doing all my early stuff. Frosty put me in a show with a live audience of 14 million. It was the most oh, yeah. frightening thing I've ever done. Then I did a series with Marty Feldman. But like, but what, like when you were at Cambridge, what were you studying? Uh, I was I was doing law. I'd got in on science, and I suddenly realized I couldn't compete with the other scientists because they seemed to be interested in it. And I thought that gave them an unfair advantage. So I said, well, what else could they do? They said, not much. Economics. Yeah. Pfft, yeah. Or law. So I said, all right, I'll do law because my dad would be, my granddad had been a solicitor. Sure, you type. got it in your genetics somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can use words quite accurately. Yeah. And uh, suddenly somebody came in the last uh, two weeks I was at Cambridge. Cambridge and saw this little review I was in. Well, what, how does Cambridge work, though? Like, 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 how it's, does it- it's very strange. It's organized through the colleges. There's about 22 different colleges. Yeah. And you have to gain admittance to a college. So you get uh, interviewed by one of the colleges. Yeah. I suppose you could go for two or three if you were lucky. Right. And then they either say they take you or they won't. And if this college says you take you, then you're at Cambridge University. Right. And you go to all the lectures. And, and you study like the, like the basic liberal arts stuff? Like, you know- no, no. It's awful. All I did and the whole time I was at Cambridge was law. Yeah. Roman law, constitutional law, international law, divorce, yeah. uh, you know, family law, real property, did, did trusts and settlements, sick? criminal law, contract, tort. That's all I ever – I was completely ignorant. And then uh, uh, ju- just – then this is really because the English educational system was so narrow. Right. And I'm delighted that both my daughters went through the American system because it gives you a chance to get a taste for things before you actually decide what to spend. Sure, and, and maybe not specialize at all and just, you know, waste all four years of it. Yeah, but yeah. Just, which is what a university education sure. used to be about. It used to be about educating people. Now it's about getting a job. And what now when at Cambridge, because I talked to uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, you know him? Yeah. 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 He, I think he was there. I don't remember if he was Oxford or Cambridge, but there's always a, a, a sort of troupe, a comedy troupe. Yes. At these colleges. Well, uh, that's right. There were always funny people going way, way back to when I was a boy. Yeah. A number of the best comedians had been to Cambridge in this club called the Footlights. So th- I think that's the one that uh, Sasha was talking yeah, about. Yeah, Sasha was in that. Yeah. And a lot of people like Rowan Atkinson, you yeah. know, and Griff Reese Jones is very good, Stephen Fry. Oh, yeah. Hugh Laurie. Uh, but the funny thing was that my year um, was the first year that the show was so successful that we all finished up in show business. None of us were planning to. 62? 63. 63. And we did a show, and this guy turned up at the end of the first week and said, I want to put you guys on in the West End. And we were completely flabbergasted. You just all college kids? Yeah, we were a student review. Who was was in it? Uh, Well, Tim Brooke Taylor. Yeah. Graham Chapman. Graham Chapman. Is that where you met Graham? That's where I met him, yeah. 
And and this guy said, I'm going to put you on the West End. And we were just astounded. Yeah. And uh, four weeks later, we opened in the West End. We got very good reviews. And we played for five months. And at the end of that, this bunch of lawyers and teachers and accountants and advertising yeah. people all went into show business. That's wild. And after it? that, people started going to Cambridge to get into the footlights, to get into show business. And that was, your year was the first year. First that time that, really, that had ever really do happened. Do you think it was because of the way culture was changing and that you felt more able to take chances? Yes, I think so. Satirically? Yes, I mean, the ideal job, uh, you know, when you were about 17 or 18, your parents really wanted you to be the head of the uh, personnel department of British Steel. Sure. And, of course, about seven years later, British Steel had disappeared. So all the jobs, you know, that we had an old-fashioned economy and all the uh, ships, for example, are now being made uh, around the world and not in Scotland and Ireland as they always had been. Right. So all of a sudden, some of the old jobs that seemed to be the really stable ones disappeared. And 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 all rat bags like us who'd gone into show business, they once said, "What are you doing? You're never living. We were doing just fine, thank you." And what happened? So did you just uh, you you toured that show? Did well, we I'm- did it for five months in the West End, and then it stopped. Yeah, and we all went off and did jobs. I got a job in radio, which is why I love. Oh, radio I didn't tour. Sport. You didn't tour the states or but anything. We did later. About oh, really? six months later, the the guy who'd put us on the West End said, "Do you want to go to New Zealand?" And we said. Where is it? Show us on the map. You know. It looks and we said, well, why not? We toured New yeah. Zealand for six uh, weeks. which was one of the funniest. The more silly things happened at that time, I never remember. I, I can't imagine. What was well, it like Well, it was then? just hopelessly old-fashioned. I mean, Bill Hardy went into an ice cream parlor and asked for a banana split. And the guy went and got a banana, peeled it, <laughs> and cut it. sliced it down the middle and gave it to him. <laughs> so just, the whole thing in New Zealand was that nothing was what you expected, uh-huh. and everything was third rate. But they didn't know it was third rate. It was they just thought the way it was, was first rate because they'd never <laughs> seen anything better. And how did your shows go over? They went over very well, actually. They liked us very much. My favorite story: a friend of mine called Johnny Lynn went into a department store because we we'd been invited somewhere a bit posh, and he wanted to buy a, a pair of cufflinks. And yeah. he said to the uh, New Zealand information person. We where do I get cufflinks? And and the man said, try the tobacco counter. And he said, no, no, you know cufflinks? So he says, yes, yeah, cufflinks. He said, try the tobacco counter? He said, yes, yes, try the tobacco counter. Yeah. So Johnny goes over the ca- <laughs> to, to, the, to the tobacco counter and says to the guy, do you have any cufflinks? And he says, this is the tobacco counter. <laughs> and this kind of seemed normal after you've been in New Zealand a few weeks. And then we heard they wanted to put us on Broadway. <laughs> sounds like the, it sounds like a Python sketch. It is. It was. It, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. New Zealand was an extended Python sketch. <laughs> and then we went on to Broadway and, yeah. and, and got very good reviews, except for one in the New York Times. And we closed after three weeks, but we were put on a little supper club. So that was the first time I was in America. And then I got into a musical, despite the fact I In America? Sing. Yeah. Half a sixpence with Tommy Steele. We ran for six months. Did um, you do any television? 
Uh, no, no. One no. or two of my friends were doing television, but I was just doing a, a part, twenty line part, uh-huh. you know, and nobody noticed me or anything like that. And then I got this phone call from David Frost, who'd known me at Cambridge, and I'd written stuff for him at Cambridge. Oh, you guys are contemporaries. I uh, just we just overlapped. His last year was my first. Well, well, before we get to David Frost, so the radio thing that you did in between these tours. How, that was really the beginning of you doing your broadcast. Yes, kind of and I was writing sketches for a, an English comedian called Dick Emery. And, was he uh, a big guy? No, he was a little fellow. No, but like a big popular... Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He was very popular. So I was writing for him and sitting in the audience marking up what what lines got laughs. And Down in, it, at, they recorded at the BBC? At the BBC. In that old studio was all over London. Yeah, yeah. And it was a love. It was a nice atmosphere. Yeah. I loved it, and I I liked the low pressure of writing. Yeah. I, f- I found performing stressful because I was terrified of failing. I'm absolutely terrified. And then Frosty calls me when I'm in New York, says, "Do you want to come over in the, uh, in the beginning of next year and be in a, a show with me?" And I said, "Really? You know?" And he said, "Yes, it's Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett." Well, of course, I'd never heard of them, and I said, "I'd love to do it." And then I find myself doing live television to 14 million people. Now, David Frost. Started- Started out as a variety host. Is that he what started out more in sketches, and then he did. He sort of shopped around and did a few jobs. But he was very clever in the way he organised his career. And when the BBC decided, as a result of this wonderful show I saw with Peter Coat and Dudley Moore, to put satire, political satire, on the television for the first yeah. time, he was chosen to be the head of that. And he was a funny guy. He was. He was not a great comedian. His timing wasn't that good. Yeah. But he was. Very perceptive about what material was good and also who had talent. And it also seems like he, it seems like the roster of writers for that show that you were, that years you were there, was like an incubator for Well, it, was, it wasn't quite in the same class as the Sid Caesar team. Right. You know, it's a different with, type of show. Yes, with uh, with si- Simon and Woody Allen yeah. and, and, and all those wonderful, wonderful writers. But there were an awful lot of good writers there. Tony Jay was one who finished up writing an enormously popular series about a, um, a cabinet minister who becomes prime minister. It was called Yes Minister. Yeah, yes prime yeah. minister. He was one of them. And, and I suppose if you got the, the, the room now, there were five Pythons writing for it. Uh, uh, now, where did, like, and Marty Feldman was there too? Marty was there. Marty was a scriptwriter. And like, scriptwriter. And he wasn't, he wasn't a performer at that time? He wasn't a performer at all. And I was the guy who got him into performing he did? because after a time, and that show was successful, yeah. Frost was also a producer, said he yeah. wanted to give me my own show. Yeah. And he said, who do you want to be in it? I said, well, obviously, Graham Chapman and Tim Brooke Taylor. Yeah. And he said, anyone else? And I said, yeah, I'd like Marty Feldman. And I remember he said, well, what, uh, Marty Feldman? He said, he's a writer. He's not a performer. I yeah. said, he is, he is, David. You just haven't seen him perform. He's wonderful. And then David looked very worried and said, but what about the way he looks? Yeah. You really thought it was going to put people off because he could, he could look extraordinary at times, sort of yeah. like a slightly hippie devil. Yeah, but he had the, those eyes. Yeah, he had the, uh, the, the, the what was a real issue, right? It, yeah, oh, yes, the thyroid eyes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, but it wasn't, you know, he could close them. And the, stuff, well, yeah. yes, they worked all right. They just didn't <laughs> look very good. And uh, so we did, uh, I, I did shows with, with, with Marty for a long time. And I'm assuming Marty Feldman's a British Jew. Yes. Yeah. 
I, I always uh, I, I like knowing that there are British Jews. You know, yeah. You get, oh, there's lots. Of I Jews. know. No, they're, they're they're very uh, well. You know, I Bob understand Hoskins, I think, how Bob often Hoskins. they feel persecuted. Yeah. But there's so many of them in important positions because yeah. they're nearly always intelligent. And I yeah. once worked with a stupid Jew, and yeah. it was a terrible shock. You, you couldn't quite. Maybe he's only pretending to be Jewish. When I, when I was a kid, when I was in college, I, I assumed the same thing, that they, you know, being brought up Jewish, that there was this Jewish exceptionalism. And then I got a job at a deli, and I, I thought, like, the fuck was I thinking? Working at a restaurant. <laughs> We're not all mathematicians and geniuses. That guy's a fucking plumber, and he's a Jew. But, but is one allowed to say that they are particularly talented, uh-huh. or does that racism? What is it? Is it, oh, you mean is it okay? If you to say, say Jewish people are particularly talented, uh, I think it's a generalization, but we'll take it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But I'm always worried about what's racist and what isn't racist. Now, so when I tell my racist jokes in my show, I always tell a couple of English racist jokes. Right. Like the first time I ever went to Australia, the Australian said to me, "Where do you put this, uh, where do you put a key? Yeah, so that an Englishman won't find it." Yeah, and the answer was under the soap. <laughs> So it's quite surprising to be on the end of jokes like I, I that. Think, I think it's race. You know, like, uh, something's race. It's, if, it's the tone. Like, you know, if you have to preface it by going like, well, you know, the Jews. You know, like, uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> then there's a, it's not coming from the right place. That's right. I told it. I, uh, I, I made such a mistake with a racist Irish joke. With a, It was actually with a, an Irish film director. And for some reason, the way I heard the joke, yeah. what, to me, it was like, like this testament of Irish perseverance and, and, and just spirit. And I just told this long joke, and he looked at me after I finished waiting for the laugh with this just hate. And then it wasn't until afterwards that I realized, like, oh, it's that's jokes about the stupidity of yeah. Irish people, not about Well, the- everybody loves stupid jokes. Well, this was see, like- when I got to Chicago, yeah. people told me for the first time stupid jokes about the Poles. And it was right. completely incomprehensible. Sure. We love the Poles. Right. They had their own squad and the RAF in the war and the English pilots thought they were wonderful because they were so crazy. They were? They just took every risk in the, in the world and they were much admired and liked. But so to suddenly get to Chicago and have people uh, doing the Polish jokes, yeah. like how many how many poles does it right, take sure. to put in a classic. light bulb? Yeah. You know, classic. Yeah. It was quite a shock because I want to say, no, that's an Irish joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love you know those kind of jokes because they're not supposed to be mean. Yeah, they're just teasing. When yeah. a teasing can be nasty, yeah. and then it's horrible. And yeah. teasing can be affectionate, and then it's lovely. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think that the issue with the jokes became the stereotyping became the problem. Yeah, yeah. but if you, if the stereotyping is not there in some form, the joke isn't funny. Look, let me tell you an Irish joke. All right. Yeah, sure. Um, Guy walks into a bar and he says to the bartender, have you heard the latest Irish joke? And the bartender says, I should warn you, I'm Irish. And the guy says, all right, I'll tell it slowly. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Now try this. A man... Yeah. A man comes into the bar and he says to the bartender, have you heard the latest stupid joke? And the bartender says, I should warn you, I'm stupid. And the guy says, all right, I'll tell it slowly. <laughs> it isn't very funny, is it? No. No? 
The joke I told was it was a, a couple of Irish guys that come over from Ireland. It was in the 1800s. They come to the States or in New York, and they're looking for work. And they go into a bar, and a bartender says, you should go out west. They're paying a dollar for every Indian scalp you can get. So these two Irish guys, this is wrong on a few levels. They, so these two Irish guys, they go out west, and they're, they get horses, and they're riding, and they're going to look for Indians to scalp for a dollar a scalp. And they find themselves in a ravine, and they look up on the, on the ridge, and they're just surrounded by hundreds of Indians. And they look up, and they look at each other, and one of them says, we're going to be rich. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, and I thought that was such a testament to the Irish spirit of like we of can. Course, do, but, of course, of uh, course. But no. It's, well, there's a Mexican it, joke I love to tell. All right, all right. I say I'm going to tell a Mexican joke, and all the audiences in, in California go, yeah. <gasps> "Yeah." I think why? I tell jokes about Germans and Swedes and yeah. Australians and Canadians. Nobody minds. So you get to what are, there, are these Mexican people so pathetic they can't have a joke made about mm-hmm. them? Do you see what I mean? Sure. No, I don't want to make a nasty joke. I want to make an affectionate joke. So there's this name vessel in the Gulf of Mexico and they see something on the horizon what is it they go yeah. over to take a look it's two little Mexicans rowing like mad yeah. towards America uh-huh. they say hey guys guys what are you doing and the Mexicans say oh we're invading America and the guy says what just the two of them? And he said, oh, no, no, the others are already there. We're the last ones. Now, I think that's sort of a triumph. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're triumphing over the system. Sure. And it's sort of, you know, it's it's a positive joke. That's yeah. not a mean joke. You know, I, I would agree with you. Um, What's I, your favorite Jewish joke? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, actually, it's a, my favorite Jewish joke is a, about... Uh, the one I, I, I tend to like that I think is the most uh, – well, it's the Murray. Let's say Murray is uh-huh. walking on the beach with his grandson, his little grandson. You know the yeah. joke? And they're walking and they're talking. They're having a nice day. And then out of nowhere, a, a wave comes and just sweeps Murray's grandson away. And he drops to his knees. He says, God, I'm, I haven't been a good Jew, and I rarely pray, but please, please, if you could do one thing, please deliver my grandson back to me, God. And just like that, another wave just drops the kid right back on the beach. And Murray looks down at his grandson. He looks up at the sky, and he goes, when he went in, he had a hat. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, I was told a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. is the maitre d' who comes up at lunchtime to a, a table of Jewish ladies who uh-huh. just finished lunch, and he says, was anything all right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Isn't it? So okay, so tell, so you're what you're you're writing for for Frost, writing Frosty, for Frosty, and you got all them pythons there, and you guys didn't all know each other until that show. Till the Frost you knew show. Well, I I don't have just come out of Cambridge, been in London for six nine months, then gone to New Zealand. But and you America. and Grammar friends. Oh yeah, we we met the second year at my second year at Cambridge, and we wrote together. And, and so were, I already knew him, and he'd gone off to be a doctor. He was training at St. Bart's Hospital. Oh, really? So when we, uh, Gray and I then wrote, um, after I worked with Marty, Gray and I wrote for a time. He was uh, doing his, 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 his studying for his medical yeah. exam. And I was, 
just married to Connie Booth, and Connie didn't know London, so I didn't want to be out of the house all day till she got to know London a bit, so I didn't do any performing. I didn't miss it. Where was she from? She was, uh, well, let me think. She was born in Indianapolis, and she lived in New Rochelle. American. Uh, yeah. Where'd you oh, meet her? Uh, she was waiting on me in a restaurant. In, he, in the States? There was a restaurant on, the third, on third Avenue called The Living Room. Uh-huh. And one or two very famous people started there. And it was staffed entirely by uh, out-of-work actresses. Uh, and, and what were you doing in the States when you met her? What year was that? Uh, that's when we were doing, uh, I was doing the, oh, the, the uh, sorry, I was doing the Cambridge Circus oh, show. Oh, so you Broadway. met her then. Okay. And you and, took and her back this, to England? And uh, yeah, we, we, we had a sort of transatlantic relationship for a couple of years. And then we got married in New York and we went back to England. And I thought she didn't know London. Yeah. So I didn't want to be out of the way all the time. So yeah. I said, I'll just write for a bit. So yeah. Until she got to know what the city was like. And Gray and I used to write for Peter Sellers. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I don't think younger people know him so well now. He's he so wonderful. Uh, but he was so out of his mind, genius. Oh, he was superb. I mean, if I thought one of the greatest movies ever made was Dr. Strangelove. Oh, unbelievable. And yeah. he plays three parts. Dimitri. Dimitri. Yes. <laughs> God, that's a wonderful movie. But the thing about Peter. What were you what, writing for him? Uh, we wrote three film scripts, and one of them got made. It was Which called one? The Magic Christian, based on a Terry, Terry Southern yeah, story. Terry Southern. Oh, yeah, it's great. That's great. Yeah, you were part of that? Yeah. Who directed that? Uh, a fellow I called remember. Joe McGrath. Oh, okay. And it wasn't very good. No, I know it was a weird 60s movie, right? Because he wasn't, he wasn't um, the, the trouble with Peter was that he was an extraordinary comic actor, I think possibly the best ever, yeah. because he could play anything. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in Strangelove, he plays the U.S. president, yeah. uh, the Dr. Strangelove himself, yeah. and an RAF officer. Yeah. Uh, all of them brilliant. Oh, the he best. should have got three Oscars. The best. Comedies never do. Well, Magic Christian, was it, Was that the one with Ringo Starr, too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ringo was played his son. He played Sir Guy Grand. And, Ringo. and this is the guy who goes and gives people money, right? To yes. Do... He's trying to, he ha is very rich, but he's trying to point out to people that greed is not a very good thing. So he plays practical jokes on people. Right. And uh, some of it was great, and we wrote for Ringo, which is lovely because I mean, Ringo has only got to say "Good morning," <laughs> and you're laughing. You know, with that wonderful <laughs> flat a, Liverpool yeah. accent, and he's got that mug. There's something about his face. Oh, he's adorable. Yeah, and yeah. he's just been made a night, which is great. Yeah, are you guys friends? Yeah, well, I don't know him very well, but right. we remember working together in whatever it was, 1967 so, or 8. So you and Graham are writing for, you wrote for for, for, for Sellers. And then, then we used to watch a kids program. Yeah. I'm not kidding. We used to watch a kids program Thursday afternoon, yeah. which had all these guys I knew from the Frost. That's yeah. Palin, uh, Idle, Terry yeah. Jones, Terry yeah. Gilliam. And yeah. I said to Gray one day, shouldn't we? Join up with them. They were they were writing for a kid show, yeah, and they were acting they on a kid they show. Couldn't, yeah, they couldn't get on adult television. We didn't teach them about that. Was, but the, but that's so funny because there is a sensibility to child's programming that I think does you know come with you guys. Yeah, doesn't it? Well, I think so because there's something you see the, the children know how to play. Most adults 
forget how to play after a time. I mean, they might play a game to win. Sure. But the, but creativity always comes from being able to play. It's fluid, and you don't need segues. Because, like, no, I think— you lose a sense of time. Right. And, and it you, doesn't matter. And you don't know whether if something happens, it doesn't. it's not good or bad. It just happened. And that <laughs> in that particular frame of mind, you yeah. become much more creative. And that's what I try to teach. I spe- uh, talk about it. But we were—and uh, there's something I think— one of the reasons that at 78 I'm still uh, not completely an old fool yeah. is that is there's a very strong childish side to me. Well, that's I mean, my wife and I hide and try to surprise each other. Yeah. You know, I got back to the flat a few months ago and I walked in and I thought, I thought she was in. Or yeah. Maybe she's going around the corner yeah. for a coffee. So I go to look in the bathroom in case she's in there. And as I go to the bathroom, a hand grasps my ankle. She has hidden under the bed yeah. so that when I go to the bathroom, she's able to reach out and grab me and frighten the shit out of me. Now, some of us are how childish. No, it's wonderful. You uh, laugh. It's only it's, it's a, a, just a step away from devious. Uh, yes, but devious <laughs> in a non-harmful way. Good. So we play all sorts of. She rang me up this morning, yeah. of course, yeah. and told me Margaret Thatcher had been killed in a car crash. She said, "Go on, go on the computer." Forgotten it was April the 1st. Oh, oh, it's right. It's April Fool's Day. Well, that's interesting to me about the children's thing because I think that what Python did uh, for future generations, one of the things is sort of just, you know, untethered the format. Yeah. Like, we, were, you know, we were bored, Mark. We were bored with the conventions that you had to set the sketch. So up when you guys, the, when you met with all of them, how, 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 what was the pitch when you met with well, Terry the, and Eric? Well, and, the extraordinary thing is... And I think this is very interesting in retrospect yeah. when you think about creativity. This was how the pitch meeting yeah. went. We went in to see this guy, Michael Mills, head of light entertainment, BBC, yeah. the god of comedy, of yeah. TV comedy in England. And he said, I gather you guys want to do a series. And we said, we loved him, Mr. Mills. And he said, well, what do you propose doing? And we hadn't discussed it. <laughs> Can you believe that? You're all six of you were in there? All six of us in there. And, and he said, well, are you going to have guest stars? And yeah. we looked at each other. We said, are we going to have guest stars? And he said, well, are you going to have music? We said, um, will we have it? It's extraordinary when you look about it. And he looked at us in despair and said, oh, go away and make 13 programs. Now, it's never happened before and will never happen again. But that was 1968? 69. All right. So that, like, did you feel that... That the BBC was like, because this is the, when culture is changing, yeah. right? So the and the 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 hippie movement is happening. The youth culture is is shifting. The older culture, the paradigm is shifting. Do you think there were there was some of that? It's like, oh these, yes, uh, yes. Like, it was a time when everyone was experimenting. Right. I mean, some of the best music, you know, right. yeah, music exactly. ever written was that period, and the comedy was very good at that period. But I think the story that I take away from that meeting with Michael Mills was that it was very freeing to us yeah. not to know what we were going to do because the bureaucrats always want to know. They always want to have everything clear. And he was a bureaucrat. He was a bureaucrat, but he actually made TV programs too, so he knew what he was talking about. And he also knew the pedigree of all you guys. That's I mean, right. It wasn't he like knew we were, were primarily writers, right. so he knew that the material was going to be good because we'd all written for Frost. But well, what happens with bureaucrats is they want everything uh, sort of settled and written down, and they got very 
yeah. worried when we couldn't decide what to call the show. Yeah. We said, we're going to call it Owl Stretching Time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we don't really think that's good. You know, so, yeah, yeah. But they always want everything clear because they're anxious types, which is why they become bureaucrats and they want to put everything in place and know it's going to happen. Yeah, and then they and want that to- is the poison to creativity. Right. And they also want to know who to blame when this goes wrong. Well, would you, well, that's right. But yeah. also, that's why they all go around in herds yeah. and yeah. vote together. Sure. So nobody, what I've discovered is that when you work with a company, whether it's a, a company wanting one of my motivational speeches or something about creativity sure. or yeah. why you've got to have the right attitude, mistakes, you can... F- Two phone calls, and you know, are they acting out of fear or acting out of confidence? Sure. Uh, If they're acting out of confidence, you know immediately who's taking the decisions. Yeah. And if they're acting out of fear, you can't figure out who takes the decisions because nobody wants to be picked out as the one who made the I've got to meet with my people on this, and uh, we'll get back to you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I've got to talk to the other guy. That's right. Yeah. And they all go off, and they talk, and most of the things you see, if they ask for a film script, uh, they they give you some money, and then after six weeks, they want an outline. And I want to say to them, you just don't understand. If you want something genuinely original, it's going to take six weeks to come up with the idea, and then another six or eight weeks to write it. But they're anxious, because they're just giving you money, and they want something back. (laughs) So they want an outline immediately in a way that kills your creativity, because you have to quickly get something done. And if you work under time pressure, you always go to the stereotypical. The only way you escape from the stereotypical is to be able to sit back and, and kind of luxuriate and take yeah. your time. Sure, and uh, yeah, that, and that is if you use that that time well. You know, like yeah. I, th- I think another concern of the bureaucrat is like, how long are these fucking kids going to take? I mean, it's just costing us more money. They're just well, they, they mistake activity for achievement. I mean, so Sam Goldwyn, when he ran uh, MGM, yeah. there was a writer's block, and the writers all sat there. And that's where they'd sit and think what the point of a scene was and how you could make that, you know, in a really dramatic way. And they had a person sitting on the end of the balcony waiting to see Sam Goldwyn. And when they saw Sam Goldwyn, they'd say, quick, and they'd run back in, put paper in the typewriter and make a lot of noise, (laughs) typing complete nonsense. And (laughs) Sam Goldwyn would hear them and say, oh, they're working hard. And he'd go away and they'd take the paper out and go back to thinking. Yeah, the the writer's sweatshop. That's right. That wasn't even real. Which is a perfect example of how the people in charge don't know how to get the best out of creativity. But it seems like, you know, your experience, whether it be a fluke or not with this guy Mills, was the opposite of what you're talking about. Well, he was wonderful, but I mean, nobody's ever done that before nobody's ever said was he group. with you through all four seasons yeah okay he knows every no yeah, one's ever said head, head of the department through all and most of the bbc hated it i yeah. mean that the, his head thought the show was awful he Maybe. said he bumped in an elevator into, into the director and said what are you doing this is absolutely awful the show of yours it's not funny at all and there was a meeting of departmental heads you know people in charge of outside broadcast and politics yeah. and news and yeah. children's programs and uh, uh, six out of eight of them said this program's no good we shouldn't uh, shouldn't go on doing it what the so, other two say 
Yeah, one of them stood up and said, it's really funny, and you mustn't take the dark humor too so seriously. Yeah. Well, one guy. Yeah. And uh, uh, there was another one who sat on the fence, and six who said, it isn't any good. They've got a kind of death wish. Well, they're, it, try they're trying to offend wish. us so that we'll take it off. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. And what we were trying to do was make each other laugh. Right. The, there was no death wish there? No. <laughs> No, but we like to push the boundaries a bit for two of reasons. Course. One, we were young and a yeah. bit naughty and disrespectful. Sure. The other thing is, if you make jokes in slightly forbidden areas, uh -huh. you get more laughter. Yeah. Because if you start embarking on a joke that's about sex, which is why there's so many sex jokes, uh, or about politics, yeah. you know, or about something controversial, there's a little bit of anxiety. If you make a good joke, you get the biggest laugh ever because the anxiety is released by the laughter. So you get the ordinary laughter and then a bit of extra laughter that comes from the anxiety being released. Sure. So that's why so many of the Faulty Towers, for example, the show you show I do set in a hotel, they have things like rats in the kitchen when the health inspector's there. Right. Or a dead body, so a guest who dies overnight. Because if you get into those areas, yeah. bigger laughs. So it's not just being naughty, it's sheer mercenary comedy. Yeah. Comedy. Yeah. Sheer mercenary comedy. comedy. Yeah. Well, the, but also, no one had ever seen anything like Monty Python before, really. Well, they had. Right? And a, it, lot like, of, a lot of people didn't get it at all. The, the mixture of animation and weird comedy and bits and then, you and know, out in the world. And not starting the program properly. I mean, we started one program with a lot of pirates carrying chests of goodies onto the rocks. And then after about 90 seconds, they walked past me sitting at the desk with my black tie right. saying, and now for something completely different. <laughs> and one friend of mine, I adore this, he, 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 we'd only been on about six yeah. or seven weeks. And he went up north to England and he switched on Python at 10.30 on Sunday night. And it was a spoof documentary on Hadrian's Wall, which oh, yeah, is yeah. a wall that right. Romans built to separate England yeah. from Scotland. And he thought it was hilarious. It had just the perfect send-up. <laughs> of, a, of a Hadrian documentary wall, a British documentary. You yeah. know, it was pompous, there yeah. were too many words, it was banal. <laughs> uh, the presenter was a sort of caricature. Right. Sure. And as it went on, he began to wonder, and he realized after time it wasn't Monty Python. It really was a documentary <laughs> on Hadrian's wall. But they weren't putting Python out all over the country. But I love the fact that yeah. the guy could be watching this documentary and falling about, and then he discovers it's not Python. Because you, you, you changed the perception. Yes, we yeah. changed the perception of how to end. We sometimes, we, we ran the closing credits in the middle of the program once. <laughs> right. It was completely confusing. I remember people. watching it in the States when I was in you know high school on repeats, obviously, uh, on PBS. Yeah. It was like you know buried on public television in the States, and you had to know when it was on. And the first time I saw it, I was I was like, "What is going on?" Really, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you know, and it was a completely you know different. No, but there is no experience like it. There's nothing like it. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, the first thing that normally happens anywhere, but especially in America, is if you have a successful show, everybody copies it. Right. But the strange thing about Python is that nobody really copied it. I mean, it's not Saturday Night Live. It's much more political satire. We didn't do political satire. I think Mr. Show was like, you know, did you ever watch that Mr. No, show with Bob and Dave? Mr. No. 
It was a sketch show, uh, and I think it was on HBO. I, I know the guys who were in it, but structurally, they, you know, I, I could see, like, they would, the two of them would start in a studio live, and then they'd move into sketches that were sort of strung together, externals. Like, I could say, the, I could see that structurally they took a lot. But the thing that was amazing about Python, uh, uh, one of the things was, just how you know intrinsic the animation and the music yeah, was, and just yeah, like you know, yeah. everyone seemed to have a voice there. Like I, that's right, including well, I mean, was Terry. Democracy gone mad. Gilliam, right? Yeah, Terry didn't write anything, as far as I remember. I but wrote the animation, with, right? Yeah, he did the animation. So we would write, put the script together, and a very funny thing happened. We sometimes discover some weeks we all seem to have been writing about the same theme. Uh-huh. It was quite. Sort of spooky. But you spread out, you break oh, into... Oh, yeah, I wrote with Graham. And who wrote with who? Uh, Michael wrote with Terry, but they lived in North and South London, so sometimes they got together and sometimes they wrote in their own houses and talked a lot over the phone. Eric always wrote on his own. Oh, really? And then we get together once a week, read the stuff out, and yeah. it was very simple. If we laughed, it was in the show, and if we didn't, it wasn't. There yeah. was hardly any exception to and that. And Terry did what? Well, well when we Terry assembled Gilliam. the show, we yeah. would say to Terry, we want to start with... The this man falling out of the window and we want to finish up in a pet shop. Yeah. And he would have 90 seconds to get from the man falling over. That was all his stuff and we never saw Terry's stuff till the afternoon of the show. Huh. It was never ready till then because the process was so... So whereas the rest of us were working together, making suggestions to each other all the time uh-huh. during rehearsal, why don't you try that? Or what about that line? Lose that bit. It's not very yeah. funny. We were working together. Terry was beavering away, usually at three o'clock in the morning in the attic of his house, and there was no feedback to him at all. So his stuff came completely separate from ours, but it fitted in because we told him how it had to begin and how it had to end. It's wild. And you did that for all four seasons. We did that for all four seasons. And then you kind of burnt out on it? Well, I left after the third season because I thought we were beginning to repeat ourselves, and I'm quite sure we were. Yeah. At the beginning, we were coming up with really original stuff, some of which I'm very proud of. And by the end of the third series, we were doing sketches that were combinations of sketch A and sketch B that we'd already Why done. Why were people getting busy with other things? No, or I, just think, kind of no I think it's just the fact that when you first, I said it was like going into a field yeah. with all these beautiful wildflowers sure. there, and you just walk around picking them because no one else had been in the field. You uh-huh. see what I mean? Yeah. And then as you pick more and more, there's less and less completely original wildflowers sure. there so you become less original and you start combining and permuti- permutating uh, stuff you've already done and, and that's why I left also I left because Gray by that time was uh, a copper bottomed alcoholic Graham was yeah, yeah. and uh, it was it was not easy to write with him he couldn't remember in the afternoon what we'd written in the morning and, and no one else was prepared to share the responsibility of working with him and I just got a bit fed up with it. Also, you know, he was used to get so drunk he couldn't get his lines right in the studio. So you'd write a beautiful sketch, and then he'd basically screw it up a bit. Well, the, or was there no help for him? Well, I don't think we knew about that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think Graham was the first alcoholic I'd ever met. Yeah, which is extraordinary. But in in our, I mean, the town where I grew up, I mean, you never said, talked about alcoholism. It was like, oh, someone tends to drink a bit much, but, but not, not more than that. 
and he was, but he, he lived a long time. So outside of you know, well, the, he didn't live very long. You know, he lived. He died in in, in eighty nine. But I mean, he did the movies. I mean, it didn't stop him from working. Well, he was very. He was an alcoholic when we did Life of Brian. Uh, sorry, when we did uh, Holy Grail, uh, yeah. he was an alcoholic. And then yeah. he went. Uh, he did Cold Turkey. Which very few people can do, but he yeah, did go tough. to, and, and he was. It was very annoying. A year later, he was fitter than any of us. It was frightfully annoying. So he just went through it on his own. He, he just, went through. It. He had a little bit of help. He yeah. had a little bit of help. But so he, life of Brian, he's sober. So he was sober and a wonderful performance. I mean, he's so good. Yeah, he was a very, very good actor. And the trouble was, when you become a drunk, yeah, you go get the lines right. You hit the wrong marks. You can't be very good. Sure, but he was. Potentially a wonderful actor, probably the best of any of us. Yeah. Well, you all seem to find your groove and your your realm of characters, right? Yeah. And it was all kind of new to you when you started, right? What was the word? Well, I mean, like when you started working together, you weren't all actors. Oh no. Yeah. No. No. So you had to learn that. We all. were writers who happened to act. People yeah. don't believe that, but I can prove it because all the fights. Yeah. And there were lots of them. Yeah. Always about the material. Was it funny enough? Was right. it good enough? And where does Neil Innes come into it? Well, Neil was a pal of uh, of, of Eric's, and yeah. he came in uh, uh, quite a lot at the beginning. He wrote a little bit of the music and one or two of the songs for uh, Holy Grail. Oh, that's right. And then yeah. he was in Life of Brian. He was the gladiator who was chased around by the guy who had the heart yeah. attack. Um, and then he came on stage shows with us. And, and when did you, like, after Python, you did Fall? Multi Towers, which was a huge show, yeah, right in England, yeah. yeah. For how many seasons? Well, it was odd. Connie Booth and I yeah. wrote the first six in '75, and then we got divorced and wrote the next six four years later. So it was really only twelve episodes. That's all. But there's so much in them, you see, because what I used to do is I used to do a commercial, get lots of money, yeah. and then spend a lot of time writing which yeah. most writers couldn't afford to do. Right. So Connie and I used to take six weeks to write a half hour. Nobody takes six weeks to write a half hour. Ten days. Some yeah. people write it in four days, uh -huh. which is why a lot of them are not terribly good. Right. And you still friends with her? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got a sweet story about her because she was an actress when I first met sure. her. And uh, I went to see her in Summerstock in Pennsylvania, and she was on stage in a fuss with Bert Lahr. Wow. Who was the fast actor at the time? The cowardly liar, sure. right? Yeah. The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and she is now married to his son. No kidding. Is the writer? Lovely? Yeah, John Lowe, yeah. who is a very, very good uh, critic, critic and yeah. writer. He was a theater critic for New York for yeah. a very long time. Yeah, he was yeah. a formidable pen. That guy. Yeah, that's right. And then you like when did so you got married a couple other times? But you, yeah, I when, think so. I vaguely remember them. <laughs> it was several. Yeah. The planet is littered with my ex-wives. <laughs> when did you move to the States, So When did you take Hollywood on? I mean, do you you don't live here now? No, I came out here in... Oh, in England, we never expected to get into movies. Sure. When we made the Python movies, they were never thought of part of the British film industry. They right. were sort of the Python movies. But I was never embraced by the British film industry. I got offered very, very few parts. I was much more likely to get offered a part in America, where they seemed to have a wider view of what I could do. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just your agents knew that, or you kind of well, knew I, that? I, I, I can't remember. But, did you but I know I didn't get many. I got one wonderful film script written by one of our very best playwrights called Michael Frayn. Yeah. Michael wrote Noises Off. 
Yeah. Which was a wonderful farce, and he also wrote a fantastic straight play called Copenhagen. He wrote me the only other script that I've ever done in which I played a lead, but were not written or co-written myself. But those Python movies made a lot of money, no? Well, they made a bit, but don't forget they were made for tiny budgets, right. and uh, they didn't get huge audiences because they were always a sort of PBS audience. Sure. The TV show was always on PBS. Right. And that's what two percent of the viewing public, i guess that's just yeah. a cult thing in a way yeah so if i go to the big cities then i find there are people there who are no faulty tars and no and no uh, python yeah. if i go to smaller cities there's a few people there who like python but a lot of them don't know faulty tars there are some americans that are complete anglophiles when it comes to comedy and like i know when i interview you that those people are going to be like i can't believe he didn't ask him about i don't know what yeah. but but there are people that are just crazy for british Comedy, yeah, they, they, the they love it. And we did have, I think we had a period, but from about 1945, really quite late till the 90s, when I think we had an extraordinary number of good comics of different kinds. Yeah. But uh, you always seemed to me to produce wonderful individual comics. Right. I wasn't so crazy about a lot of your sitcoms because in the 50s and 60s, so much of it was bland. Yeah. And the other thing was that if a character was rude to another character or something like that, he'd have to say to the uh, camera, you know, we're really, really good pals. Yeah, sure. Just well, that's joking. right. All in the Family is actually a British sitcom, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It was called uh, Till Death Do Us Part. Yeah. And what I like about comedy, and and the first time I ever saw it was in Taxi with Danny DeVito. That was the first time I saw people being mean to each other. And people being mean to each other is okay if it's a comedy, not if it's real life. Sure. You see what I mean? And you you always knew that. Oh, I always knew The British knew it. I always knew that, and I always knew that uh, W.C. Fields was wonderful. (laughs) I mean, this is a man who said anyone who hates children and dogs can't be all bad. Yeah. Now, that's that's not... (laughs) That's that's your um, guy, Uncle William. Yeah, well, you did a lot of movies, and Fish Called Wanda you wrote, and that got nominated for an Oscar of some kind, didn't it? Yeah, well, I hadn't done a movie, and the others had, so I settled down to write that, and I spent a very long time. I wrote thirteen drafts. Yeah, can you believe that? Well, you seem to like to do that. Well, I do because I, I like to get it right, and that was a popular movie. It was very that made a lot of money. And yeah, that was very useful. But the trouble is, the follow up, yeah, wasn't anything like as good. Although a lot of people like. It was set in a zoo. Yeah, I kind of remember it. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. It actually was better than people said because they they measured it against Fish Called Wanda. Right. And if I hadn't made such a good film the first time, people yeah. would have thought it's an okay comedy. It's not special, but it's fine. And and but you'd always show up. You know, you you, you it's like I'm always excited to see you. You show up in other movies doing a yeah, thing. Yeah, but not much. I did I did a a, a very funny routine in uh, the Outer Towers mm. with Steve Martin yeah. and, and Goldie Hawn. That, yeah. that was very good, and I loved the part in Rat Race. But on the whole, the the the, the comedy in in cinemas has got a little simpler and a little more. A little more simple-minded over the years for the simple reasons the only people who are going to the uh, cinemas actually buying tickets and sitting in a cinema are, are young people. And yeah. Apparently, statistics show that it's the young males who tend to choose sure. which movie they're going to see, and, and young American males are not, by and large, very sophisticated. 
That's true. Well, you go, hangover's the ultimate. Right. You see what it's all about? Sex, drugs, yeah. gambling. You see what I mean? It's and all violence. about that stuff. You yeah. made a joke about the French yeah. Revolution, that'd be silent. So are you, does that concern you in general about the yes. youth of the world? Yes. Lack of curiosity. Lack of curiosity, lack of a sense of history, lack well, of Well, when context. I grew up, the idea was, yes, exactly. When you said sense of history, when I grew up, the idea was you should have good general knowledge. You should know where Australia is and roughly what the population is, and sure. you should know what the religion is in Pakistan and you see what I mean yes you know who's president yeah well yes preferably and where Bolivia is yeah and uh, we say that to young people and historically you know you should you know knew what happened when yeah and that's that led to that led to that led to this but we talk to young people now they say well why why should I need to know that yeah and I suppose the answer is you don't need to do anything except breathe and eat right you know, but if you don't, if you're not interested, if you go into sh- into malls in, in California and you say, can you tell me where the shoe shop is or a coffee shop? Sure. The answer you'll normally get is, I don't know. Yeah. Because they don't bother to go out and look around and see where everything is just so they can know where everything is. It's so it doesn't, they're not interested. In the end, it, it's on, they will say, it's on my computer. I can get it off my computer. Yeah, but right. ideas are not words. Yeah. The ideas affect you. And if you have an idea and you understand an idea, that has effect on your thinking. That doesn't happen if you just look the idea up and forget it immediately. Yeah, there, yeah because, and also because it's not, like you said, that there's no continuity to what you get on the computer. Everything just floats. You know, it's a point of reference. You do a search, it comes there. It's not going to give you the sense of history. No. It's just going to give you a trivia. It's going to give you right. an answer and, to and it. And everything goes down market. Rupert Murdoch has made a fortune by realizing the way to make money is to go down market. Yeah. You know, and it's destroying the world. Yeah, it is destroying our culture. He has done more to destroy British culture than anyone since the Luftwaffe. <clears throat> and what do we do about it? Well, nobody does because you know, our Prime Minister Theresa May. Yeah, uh, he's uh, she's in his pocket. Yeah, she's done a deal with him not to clean up British newspapers, which are probably the worst in Europe. Yeah. there was a poll recently. And we came 33rd out of 33 countries in Europe for trusted our printed press, but nobody read it because the newspaper censored it. You know, it's, and it's yeah. like that the whole time. I mean, the guy came out of the woodwork three weeks ago and said he carried out criminal activities like hacking and blagging uh, for the Sunday Times, and the guy who edits the Sunday Times is now editing the Times, and the newspapers are hushing it up. So what is British like culture like right now? It's a bit chaotic, but there are, you know, just as these kind of podcasts have become very popular with people, there are some very interesting lectures happening all over the place. But yeah. I remember you 30 years ago having lunch earlier on a Sunday and going back and seeing a philosophy program with a philosopher called Brian McGee. I mean, the idea that you would sell that now... Even on the BBC, which doesn't have commercials, is ridiculous. Everything's gone down market. Everything is more uh, banal. And there's not much intelligence around because everyone's scared. Everyone's operating out of fear. And I've just been doing a series in, in England, which is very successful, but just trying to get a decision out of these people is hopeless. Yeah, fear, and then the audience is, like, very uh, ADD. Uh, they, they underestimate yeah. people's interest, and then they feed the, the sort of lowest common denominator, and then, you know, people get very shallow over time. Yeah, and they want immediate results. Yeah, you know, they right. want something like... Child- 
child mind. Yes, um, uh, friends, yeah. which was extraordinary from the very beginning. But all the things I do aren't very popular at the yeah. start because people don't quite get it for a time. Yeah. And uh, they never build that in. They're immediately anxious that yeah. the second show didn't go particularly well. I want to tell them about Cheers, yeah. which had terrible viewing figures for the first year. I and mean, it finished up making more money than any other sitcom except for Seinfeld. And what is what are you working on now? What is it? Uh, I've I've written a, a sort of speech kind of a presentation called "Why There Is No Hope," oh, that's and great. that is yeah, yeah, it's very good. It's, yeah. I'm really pleased with it. It's yeah. got lovely stuff in it, like the fact that. Uh, 20 years ago, during the New York doctor's strike, yeah. the death rate went down. You see, I find that kind of stuff <laughs> very funny. And you like performing, and you're, you're, you're living in England, and you're married again, and everything's I'm Married great. again, and I, I've, I've, the, the secret to happiness, because I'm now happier than I've ever been, uh-huh. is not to need much. Uh-huh. You know, good food, good wine. Yeah. Um, buy your wife a present now and again. Yeah. Uh, cats cost a fortune because we've got three main coons. They weigh all together. They're all weighing 10 kilos. Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely huge. And that's pretty much all I need except for books. That's great. So if you, if you reduce your needs, then everything becomes much more possible. Yeah, and also if you uh, like, if you get old enough to sort of uh, to have some of the resentment and bitterness fade, <laughs> I still have moments when people who cheated me, in particular, annoy me. Do you get along with the other guys though now? Oh yeah, the I mean pythons? we're like a bunch of py- uh, brothers. Yeah, you know we we fight and but anyone attacks us, yeah, yeah. we all go for them. Oh maybe. really? Yeah. And how just... is Terry Jones? How's he? Terry is not good. Yeah. Terry's definitely not going to get better, right. according to every doctor. And uh-huh. He can uh, walk and uh, take exercise and uh, eat and enjoy his red wines. Yeah. But uh, he can't follow a conversation. He can watch tapes. But if there's a slight digression in a conversation, it's as though he gets lost. Oh. So that's very sad. Gray hasn't been there for a long time. Eric is great fun. He's writing the musical. For Fox, I think of uh, of um, Spamalot. Oh, hey, oh, for the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. Writing the movie, and Michael is always doing things. He's just doing a program at the moment on shipwrecks. He's so funny. It's so weird to see him so serious, like doing regular. Well, I think he he was in a film once with Meg Ryan, I think it was, and he completely got cut out of the film, which is extraordinary because uh-huh. he's a wonderful actor. You know, he got a British Oscar for, for, for the stutterer yeah. in Fish Called Wanderer, best oh, yeah. supporting actor. Oh, God, he's, he's so funny. He's a wonderful actor, he's... and he's very funny to be with, but he decided, I think, the trouble is everyone loves him to bits, Yeah, and I think sometimes he relies on the fact that everybody loves him, so he can do those fucking boring travel programs, and everybody enjoys them because they want to be with my <laughs> But he's one of those guys you look at and you're like, it's going to be funny soon, yeah, right? Yeah. Because he, he, had, he had such a level of commitment. Yes, that's right. To, to, to the yeah, funny. And he's a happy chap, too, oh, that's which good. is lovely. That well, comes over very that, well. Well, that's great. Well, I think there was another Python, but I've forgotten who that Oh, Gilliam. Gilliam, Gilliam, Gilliam does big movies. Yeah, he is, right? Completely driven. Yeah, and, still, huh? Uh, but he's made his, he's finally made his Don Quixote movie. Is it going to come out? He's actually made it and finished it. I know people who have been working on it. Was it Johnny Depp? Who's in it? I don't know. Everybody, been... everybody was in it, and everybody dropped out. It's not Johnny Depp anymore. But it's been going on for a long time. 
25 years. And it's going to happen. <laughs> yes. Wow. That's very typical, Gilliam. Yeah, but you t- you're in touch with him? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we insult each other regularly. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it was great talking to you. Good. Pleasure. So there you go. That was me and John Cleese. And you can't hear, uh, not yet or maybe ever, the podcast that uh, that I recorded with him. You understand? Did I make that clear? I'm a little loopy. I'm tired. I couldn't I couldn't sleep last night because I was so buzzed out from uh, my performance. But the other podcast that we recorded was him interviewing me. And we were going to release them jointly or at the same time. That was the plan. That's how it, that's why we did it. That's okay. Got it? Good. So I've got nothing to say now, and I'm not gonna play guitar because to be honest with you, my fingers hurt. They've been through a lot. Okay? Okay. Boomer lives!